So nearly 7.34, and we'll get into some interesting trivia, first of all. According to Google, online searches for move to Canada spiked significantly in the UK after its polarising general election last week. But people look into the possibility of moving for all sorts of reasons. We have a far more pronounced and potentially far more serious reason, as in 2017, according to the World Bank, up to 24 million people were forced to move by sudden onset weather events like flooding, forest fires and intense storms. A group of scientists is working to build simulations to predict movements of climate refugees, and so we can bring in Dr. Derek Grone, first of all, lecturer in simulation and modelling at Brunel University London. Thank you for taking the time. Hi, thank you very much. It's nice to be on the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so can you tell us about these simulations of refugee movements and how helpful they are? Yes, absolutely. So um, what we do within our group is uh, we build um, uh, agent-based models, as they are called. So essentially what we do is we represent every refugee um, as an object in the computer and uh, we basically establish rules that uh, make them decide uh, where they move. Uh, and uh, when they move. So um, usually we place them in a, in a place where they originate, and then based on the circumstances within the country and within the environment, they might either stay put or they go to an adjacent town or city or perhaps even to, uh, to an encampment eventually. What was really the, the trigger that prompted a group of computer scientists to construct a simulation for refugee movements? Um, well, uh, when I started as a lecturer in 2015, I was basically ready to uh, move between different disciplines. I wanted to explore a new area, and I was looking at the news, and back in the days, the, the conflict in Syria was really uh, on the headlines in the news. So I started to look around in the scientific literature, and I could find very little uh, scientific simulation work that tried to predict where uh, refugees go, where they arrive. And I thought this could be quite useful because it could help organizations to bring goods in advance of the refugees arriving. So when I saw that there was quite little work being done in that area, I started to do research on that. And uh, yeah, that's about four years ago now. And so we're talking about an algorithm. Is it similar to AI machine learning at all? Or is there still a, a very strong human input? Uh, there, there, there is a strong human input, but I would say it complements a little bit with artificial intelligence or machine learning. Um, the way in which agent-based modeling is a little bit different is that we sort of try to take the human perspective. Every agent in our model represents a human, so we really have to decide, okay, what, what makes a human decide to go to a town nearby or a town further afield? Um, why would a human stay in one location or why would he or she leave? And the difference in a nutshell, a little bit that when you have a lot of data and you have very good data collection, machine learning and artificial intelligence tend to work pretty well because they use this historical data for training. Uh, but for agent-based modeling, um, you don't necessarily need so much data because if you, are, if you have a basic understanding of how humans make their decisions, you can then just put that in the code. So in general, the machine learning tends to work better in areas where you have very good data collection. But in the case of, for example, violent conflicts, the data collection is not so good. So then we use agent-based modeling. How accurate, though, uh, in, in real life, do you expect this to be going forward as climate change continues to become a problem for the world? And, and we've got these predictions of huge movements in the years to come, even bigger than we've already seen. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think um, the, the difficulty with climate, of course, is it's a global phenomenon. And uh, in local areas, it can sometimes be very hard to predict what will happen. Um, it's, it's a very new field, and there are now also other groups uh, starting to do research on this. Um, in, his, in historical context, we achieved pretty good results. We got about uh, 75% of the destinations of the people escaping uh, correct when we validated against uh, specific conflicts uh, in the past, uh, in Africa, for instance. But when we start to forecast these things, it becomes a lot more difficult um, for, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is that we also need to forecast other things that go forward. So, for example, if we talk about... Uh, climate migration, climate refugees, then obviously if you want to forecast how people move, you also need to forecast what kind of weather events uh, you would likely expect. And politically as well, it's difficult to predict, isn't it, how welcoming other countries might be. I mean, if if there's a a choice of three, four, five different countries, uh, but maybe spread out across even a couple of broad regions, it, it would matter hugely what their immigration policies were. Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, it, it's very hard uh, for a simulation code to uh, to predict what a government will do. But what we can do with a simulation code, and I think that could be quite interesting, is that we can try to investigate what the consequences would be if a political if a particular government takes a particular decision. So, for instance, what we can do in our simulations is we could look at a particular uh, situation where a disaster conflict takes place, and then uh, we can look, okay, what are the consequences if one of these countries decides to close their border, for instance, or another country decides to open additional uh, support camps. Um, these are things that in real life we would never know because they're counterfactuals, but in a simulation we can change the settings and then see how the movements would change. In a sense, we have seen, a, haven't we, um an interesting precedent from history. If we think about the mass migration from Europe and other parts of the world to, to North America um, in, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries in particular, uh, and and there were sometimes weather events or famine events that, that forced that. I, I know from my own history study in the past that the, the, the causes of volcanic eruptions in Iceland, but also in Ireland, the famine, for example, created these diasporas in North America. But in, in some cases, they were really welcomed to, to populate sparse areas of land. How, how helpful is that period of history in your study? That, that's, a, that's an extremely good question, and it's, it's not so easy to answer. Um, it's, it's probably the, the kind of event that will happen may also determine the kind of uh, aspect that determine whether people move or not. Um, it depends. So an event can be useful um, when we have very good anecdotal information because we can figure out what drives people to make certain choices in terms of movement, or if we have a very good uh, data set because then we can see if we could apply our model in that particular context and then also potentially in future contexts. Well, we'll be watching to see if uh, your models continue to uh, prove to be helpful in the future. Obviously, already it's uh, showing uh, signs of attention that's uh, brought us to you this morning. And we thank you, Dr. Groen, for taking the time. Thank you very much. Dr. Derek Groen, speaking to uh, us. Yeah. 
and, and have a good day, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, you too. I, I guess for you, it's pretty late now. So wish you a good sleep, Dr. Derek Groen from Brunel University, London. But let's move on now to Professor Hussein Amory, the Director of the Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences Division at Colorado School of Mines. Thank you very much for joining us. You're most welcome. We wanted to connect with you because you've been studying various aspects of water and food security in the Middle East. And how is climate change already threatening that situation? Climate change is impacting, there has been impact the region for some time, and uh, the primary impact that is being felt in different countries of the region has been primarily uh, in terms of the frequency of droughts. So droughts have been happening more frequently than ever before. Um, Has the, the, the drought cycle been causing more of an intense threat as well than ever before? More frequent, but also more severe? So the um, so one cli- uh, of the consequences of climate change is um, uh, certainly, as far as the Middle East is concerned, uh, is that droughts have become more intense, more severe, and more longer lasting, and more frequent. So uh, in the um, northern Syria Iraq uh, region, uh, roughly the fertile crescent area, uh, drought cycles have. Uh, have been shortened from in the, uh, from about 55 years over the last few centuries, from once one drought every 55 years to uh, every 27 years, and in more recent decades, it's been every 13 years, and we've seen droughts happening even um, sooner than that. Um, what what are we calling a, a drought exactly, as opposed to uh, an extended dry period that might happen? as the normal part of climate movements in in the Middle East? Drought is when precipitation is insufficient to meet the people's uh, needs as they were used to meeting them. So, therefore, there is no universal definition of drought. So, drought in a wet area would mean something very different than a drought, uh, how drought is seen in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, failing to meet your uh, insufficient precipitation to meet your needs that you have been used to meeting. So if we bring this into an example that many of us would understand, um, I know that you've begun a new project studying social and economic conditions needed to repatriate Syrian refugees in Lebanon to farming homes in Syria and, and why it would be accurate to view them as climate refugees rather than war refugees. Can you elaborate for us? Well, I mean, refugees, uh, people flee their countries for lots of different reasons. And uh, um, so uh, uh, so one of the reasons that refugees from Syria uh, left, one of the reasons why people left Syria definitely has to do with the war. I mean, they left for safety. Uh, but uh, in addition to the um, violent conditions that have existed in Syria since 2011, uh, there's another uh, insidious, not much covered, not much reported reason, that is uh, the drought that has been affecting northern Syria for the last, uh, uh, in, in recent times. So, so drought has been um, affecting the area roughly where the Islamic State used to control 
um, and uh, well before the war started. So, so the refugees that I've interviewed are not all uh, left. Not all the refugees that I interviewed in my research have left during the war. Some have, in fact, left Syria, northern Syria, 20 years ago, and they established a base in rural areas in the Beka Valley, especially in Kapalias and other areas in eastern Lebanon. And uh, uh, so they um, they've been so they've been a trickle of uh, migrants, environmental climate refugee migrants from northern Syria uh, into the rural areas in Lebanon. And when I asked when I asked refugees about you know um, would you uh, go back to uh, Syria if there's peace and tranquility, uh, because. The focus of my project is exactly that. Uh, the focus of my project is what would it take for refugees who have originated from rural areas to go back? What preconditions need to exist on the ground back home in Syria? Mm. Uh, what conditions need to exist there for them to go back to thrive and, and, and uh, resume their rural activities, farming activities? And many of them told me, even if there's peace and tranquility, we would not go back because the land has been, in their words, giving us less and less over the years. And when I ask, why is that? Because it's been raining less and less. And and so that gives us a real taste of what it might be like if other parts of the world were to suffer from severe drought, for example. We we are almost out of time, Professor Emery, but can you briefly conclude what that situation has been like for Lebanon and Turkey, for example, in, in welcoming these refugees uh, and, and how we can maybe learn from the strain? So uh, Lebanon and Syria, uh, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Lebanon has uh, something like uh, uh, 900 and some thousand, uh, close to a million refugees that are officially registered. There's a much larger number who have uh, who are unofficially in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, Turkey has a larger number, and uh, both the uh, local Turkish population and the native Lebanese population have become impatient, to put it mildly, have become impatient with refugees, and they want them to go back home. And the um, and in fact, the Turkish government has recently started resettling. Uh, Syrian refugees who have called Turkey home for the last few years, they started resettling these refugees back in northern Syria. Mm. Uh, I'm, I haven't seen any evidence of conditions on the ground. Uh, uh, I don't see evidence of conditions on the ground in Syria that these refugees have a chance to uh, succeed um, uh, in terms of making a living. And the severe economic crisis uh, that has that Lebanon is going through now uh, uh, meant uh, that the Syrian refugees in Lebanon are leaving in larger numbers than expected. The Lebanese daily paper, the Daily Star, reported this uh, today. Um, Professor Amory, thank you very much for sharing some of your concerns and, and some of the concerns that many people obviously have. It's, it's very easy for us in a, in a country that's not suffering from drought to, to completely ignore all this, but the world won't be able to ignore it for forever. Um, and good luck with your ongoing research. Thank you very much. Professor Hussein Emery from the Colorado School of Mines and